Hello and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin, executive editor at the Mises Institute. And with me, of course, is Tho Bishop, my co-host. And we have a guest this week, Joseph Solis Mullen. And he's been a writer off and on for the Mises Institute over the years. And he's also become something of an expert on China and has even written a book on it. And uh, what's the name of your book, Joseph? The Fake China Threat and Its Very Real Danger out of the Libertarian Institute. And so this is a new book. And we've touched on these issues before uh, at the Mises Institute, just issues of our U.S. perceptions, or at least the regime stated perceptions of China accurate. And Tho and I have talked just in recent weeks about the ongoing threat of um, the anti-Washington party, the dissenting party, the party that isn't totally on board with limitless power in Washington, that there's a constant standing threat to that resistance to the regime. And that is the idea that the average American gets convinced that the United States needs a new Cold War and all that entails new security apparatus, new intelligence, and that if if Americans don't give up their freedoms, China will conquer the United States. And very similar to the sort of rhetoric that was used uh, to get rid of American freedoms during the old Cold War with the Soviet Union, much of which was based on nonsensical data about the strength of the Soviet Union at the time as well. So it's very important to have a realistic view of China and its strength um, but while also, I think I we would all just hold to the idea that you don't get to abolish the Bill of Rights, even if China was an extremely powerful state. Uh, nevertheless, let's just talk a little bit about China, about China's view of the Americans, about its current strength, and just provide some context to our readers overall about what's going on uh, in East Asia, uh, just overall, but also about some of the modern day specifics. So I just want to start off by asking you, Joseph, then, uh, what, as someone who grows up in China, what, what am I taught about China's place in the world and the view of the United States? And how does history enter into that? Just looking, going back just to the 19th century, say, and relations between China and the West, what, what is the overall view of that, and how does that factor in today's views of what China's place in the world is? Well, that's, that's a great question, uh, and it's, it's actually kind of interesting because, of course, Chinese civilization stretches back a couple of thousand years. Um, for the majority of that time, uh, especially, uh, you know, around a thousand, I mean, by that point, uh, for what data is worth, they, they estimate that China by the, you know, 13th, 14th century was responsible for like 30, 40 percent of total global output. It was by far the most populous political entity. It's obviously quite complicated because there are a lot of different dynasties and regimes that took power. Some of them were foreign, like the Manchu and Mongol dynasties. Some of them were ethnically Han Chinese, which is the, the sort of the core of the Chinese civilizational state there, the Confucian, Taoist, legalistic um, civilization. Um, so I, I actually heard a, a, someone say, China has just had a couple of bad centuries, basically. Uh, and that's kind of how it's viewed, that um, China basically uh, was exploited during a moment of weakness and preyed upon, uh, not only by uh, the West, 
uh, but also by Japan. Uh, things that happened 150 years ago still deeply color relations today. Um, so China. China was the, the center of civilization. Uh, that's sort of how it's viewed, uh, you know, the origin of all sorts of things like movable type, uh, long before the West, uh, gunpowder, all sorts of different things like that. It was sort of the first uh, purely bureaucratic state. And so the West is, is not viewed uh, in good terms. Um, America specifically. America specifically has a very minor role in the 19th century. Essentially what happens is traders uh, who uh, have access to China uh, via one port, that was at Canton, um, are doing a small amount of trade in like uh, English manufactured goods and things like that, but the real market is for opium. The real market is for drugs. And so, of course, um, where, where there's demand, there's going to be supply, right? We know this from our own failed drug war. Well, the Qing dynasty, which was the final uh, imperial dynasty, this was the Manchu, it was a Manchu dynasty, so it was a foreign dynasty, and this was actually important for understanding why the state was not able to effectively marshal its resources and fight off what would eventually be a French invasion, a British invasion, a Japanese invasion. It's because large parts of the population didn't want to be ruled by the Manchus anyway. Um, the Han, for example. And then, of course, down in the, in the southern uh, parts of China, you have something like 80 different ethnic groups. Uh, and the terrain is super difficult. It's like Vietnam everywhere, right? And mountains. The Himalayas are there. So, um, of course, China, the, the Manchu dynasty, uh, makes peace very quickly with a lot of these foreign powers because they're concerned with suppressing their own population. And during the 19th century, there's something like, I forget off the top of my head, something like 13 or 14 different major revolts, including like the Taiping Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion. And these are huge, huge. I mean, the, the, the Taiping Rebellion, depending on what numbers you look at, 20 million people got killed. I mean, these were huge, huge wars. Um... And so, you know, China basically is in danger of coming apart uh, by the by the turn of the century. Um, Japan has taken um, man uh, Korea basically, um, Taiwan, which was Formosa. Um, they called it Formosa. Um, France has moved into Indochina, uh, Vietnam. Um, Portugal has like Macau, the British have Hong Kong, and there's all these different spheres of influence. And this is part of the set, what's called, what they call the century of humiliations. And I go, so it, I, I talk about this to some degree in the book because it's important to understand just how much this plays into propaganda, specifically the CCP's propaganda, the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda, because Mao, by defeating, uh, you know, the Japanese and by, standing up to the Soviets and the Americans. He basically says, uh, the word he uses, he taught China, the Chinese communists taught China how to stand up, to, to defend itself and to regain its lost honor and to reclaim those parts of China that were taken away. And so this does play into propaganda around Taiwan, for example. You hear uh, Xi Jinping talk about um, unification of Taiwan to the mainland is the final step to uh, accomplish the rejuvenation of the Chinese uh, state and nation, the end of the century of humiliation, essentially. And so uh, we'll probably go into this, but sovereignty is, is huge. When, when you look at Chinese foreign policy, Chinese domestic pol policy and politics, uh, concern for Chinese autonomy, sovereignty, independence, the, the quickest way to get the population to rally around the CCP is to act belligerently 
towards China and to try and uh, impinge on or contain them. It, it really creates a very easy rally around the flag effect because it's so uh, present. It's so present. I mean, just in the 1990s, you had the Clinton administration sailing aircraft carrier battle groups right off the coast of China, threatening them. Um, and this, of course, uh, had echoes of the 1950s when we had the first and second Taiwan Straits crises, when Eisenhower was threatening to nuclear bomb China out of existence. So uh, the United States um, is sort of seen as the big impediment uh, to China realizing uh, it's it's end of century of it's end of the century of humiliations, and uh, that that really colors a lot of people's perceptions of the United States. So in terms of the the sort of average Chinese netizen, that that's kind of where they're coming from. That China was strong, China was basically taken advantage of during a moment of weakness, preyed upon, and that uh, Western powers, specifically the United States, don't want China to be strong and independent. Uh, they want to keep it suppressed and able to be uh, controlled. Well, and from what I can see, uh, Chinese policy then, and correct me if I'm wrong then, is now the rhetoric in the United States is, well, China will then invade the Americas and, uh, and uh, present some sort of existential threat to the United States. Uh, but from what I can see, the reality is more something like China's goal is simply to assert control of its territorial waters and for at least the first island chain uh, around China, which would be Taiwan and uh, areas uh, peripheral to Japan and just the South China Sea as well, and maybe even the second island chain, which would include Guam and some of those other islands closer to the middle of the Pacific. But that's still a whole long way from the Americas. And... So is that more of just their policy is to assert some sort of hegemony over Eastern Asia and or do they have ideas of global hegemony of some kind like Americans clearly want and spend immense amounts of dollars trying to assert on a daily basis? Well, going back uh, 40, 50 years, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, of course, doesn't uh, come to power and take over the state until 1949. There's been a consistent emphasis on creating a multipolar world order. That this is uh, their preferred. They the the idea that China is trying to take over the world and rule the world is really just so much projection. And actually, Murray Rothbard wrote a great series of articles back in the 1950s in Faith and Freedom. Uh, kind of picking apart some of these same uh, fallacies that you hear today and that you just mentioned, the whole idea that you know they're going to island hop their way all the way to the United States. And so don't we have to defend the pescadores? Don't we have to defend Taiwan? No, he says, this is all ridiculous. Um, and China make no bones about the fact that Beijing makes no bones about the fact Taiwan, they want that reunified with the mainland. They have outstanding territorial disputes with uh, South Korea over Scotra Rock, which like some of these are literal, just rocks. It's rocks. And the idea here isn't uh, necessarily even like military expansion. Like in the Spratly Islands, they've they've built like airstrips onto some of these, which those are kind of uh, mm, several hundred miles from the Philippines, essentially to the northwest of the Philippines. But like if you if you are able to claim that as your territory, you get an exclusive economic zone to operate out of. And there's a lot of oil and gas underneath the ocean floor there. 
A lot of people don't realize this. The ocean is not very deep off the coast there. It's one of the things that I always point out to people who are like, oh, well, our submarines will totally just, you know, destroy any Chinese invasion fleet. They couldn't operate in that in that strait there. Like, they'd get destroyed so easily. Our submarines would. Um, so it's actually very accessible. Oil, natural gas resources. Um, obviously, Taiwan. Uh, General MacArthur said it best. It's an unsinkable aircraft carrier right off the coast of China. Of course, they don't want American military assets right there. I always just ask people, do you not recall what happened when someone tried to stick military assets into an island right off the coast of the United States? Right. Like Kennedy was like, I will literally take us to the brink of blowing up the world. You know, the idea that, well, oh, my God, the other day, uh, a Chinese fighter uh, intercepted a, a, an American nuclear capable bomber. Off the right, right off the coast there, and people were like, "Isn't that just crazy? What's up with the Chinese being so belligerent, intercepting our bomber off the coast of China?" And it's like, guys, I seem to remember a hot air balloon accidentally floating over the United States and everyone losing their mind for a whole week. Like, there's just no sense of strategic empathy. There is no attempt on the part of the imperialists who run our apparatus to try to see things. From someone else's perspective, they have no incentive to do that. And the average American, as you say, knows very little about this stuff because it really makes no material difference to their lives. What's making us poor and what's making us unfree, as you already said, is playing empire. I mean, it's making us bankrupt. Our, uh, you know, we had a trillion dollar deficit year on year uh, for several years. Now it's up to, I think, two trillion. But that's our military budget. Like when you add up all the different parts of the military budget, like it's over a trillion dollars. They've just been putting the empire, the 800 military bases, all that stuff, global hegemony. They've been putting it on the credit card. And, uh, you know, Janet Yellen and all of her infinite wisdom, you know, didn't even have the sense to refinance all that debt long term at low interest rates. So now if you watch the debt clock, oh, my goodness, it's like leapfrogging up. I mean, we're going to hit 50 trillion dollars in debt by 2030 probably now. And they act like, well, of course, she just said it the other day. We can finance a war in, U in Ukraine, uh, Israel, uh, fight China. No, no, uh, we're we're gonna go broke. Like this, this is what it is, and we're going to get less and less free because you have to create a a state powerful enough, as you well know, a state powerful enough to fight China and to try and run the world is a state that is, is far too powerful for us to have individual liberty here in the United States. The Constitution is just in the way. And every attempt and connivance is made to undermine and destroy and go around it. I mean, just look at the amount of executive orders that we have now. I mean, the imperial presidency of the 1970s looks oh so tame now, doesn't it? Now we get hundreds of executive orders. Congress basically does nothing. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's, it's a very tough thing to do because they show you China on the map and, you know, they play that ominous music and they say, oh, they're flooding our country with drugs and stealing all the jobs. And people are like, well, there are drugs and we are missing jobs. So must be China's fault. And it's like, guys, these were all Washington's policies. Washington did all of the. How did China magically take all the jobs, magically hook us all on drugs? Come on. They never they never explain that part. Just like they never actually explain. Tom Cotton never actually explains how China or Russia will invade the United States. It's just if Ukraine falls, then democracy is over. And it's just it's a rhetorical device. Haven't you seen Red Dawn? They just I have. They parachute people in. It's a piece of cake. Jake Sullivan just referenced that the other day in a New Yorker article. I don't know if you saw that, but they said. What, what's up? And he's like, well, I, I grew up on Red Dawn, so I believe in the little guy's fight against tyranny. And I was like, 
This is so much cartoonish stuff. Like, I can't believe this. Joseph, uh, one of the ways, one of the reasons why America has, um, your average American is talking a lot more about China. You know, we, we kind of saw the turning of the page from the, you know, the, the war on terror to China. Now we're kind of getting some, some you know, early 2000s flashbacks right now. Um, but obviously a big pivot rhetorically, even though, as you mentioned, there's been some, um, you know, the, the, the relationships between the U.S. and China, this is not necessarily a modern Phenomenon. You know, I remember you know, during the Bush administration, we had a surveillance plane go down in China, um, you know, right before 9/11. Um, but obviously, it's, it's kind of the, the Trump impact, um, kind of playing into, as you mentioned, some of those economic concerns and things like that. Uh, but there's also been the rise of Xi, who is kind of, I think, seen as a a pivot away from perhaps steps towards, you know, a, a more liberal China. Um, a lot of the attempts to, you know, kind of the idea that, well, the, the more that we trade with China, the more it's going to lead to an opening up the economy. It's going to lead to, again, more of, of sort of a, a Western embrace. And so, so she is kind of portrayed as a figure. And, I, you know, you, you can see it with some of his rhetoric, um, you know, someone who is, um, you know, has been described as neo-Maoist, particularly in terms of, of his domestic views. And so there is a narrative out there that, okay, well, China might have been on a path towards being a more reasonable world actor, but now it's, it's the leadership of Xi that has, uh, you know, who's kind of, kind of this, this Chinese communist throwback that is fueling all of this, uh, you know, this, this, this aggression with its neighbors and its, its global ambitions and the like. And, of course, they tie into economic policies and the like. Um, and so what, what are your views on Xi in particular with his impact on Chinese history um, and kind of him being used as sort of the, you know, we always need a good bo boogeyman. And I feel like him right next to Putin right now are kind of the two big figures that Washington points to. That's that's all great stuff. And I, I would just say, OK, so from 49, just for any listeners who aren't aware, from 49 to about 69, the U.S. and China have very fraught relations. There are war scares. Um, Nixon and Kissinger open to China in an attempt to balance against the Soviet Union. Now, he has multiple reasons for doing this. Some of them are domestic. One of them is he wants to push the Soviets towards strategic arms negotiations that they don't want to do. And the other one is uh, Nixon is trying to get out of Vietnam, and he thinks the Chinese can help get him out of Vietnam. Okay, so even here, Mao, one of the great mass murderers of the 20th century, Peak cultural revolution, crazy China fighting the Soviets, the Indians, all its neighbors. If it was in America's interest, which it was in America's interest to open to China, that's what he did. So I would just ask people, you know, look, just like Vladimir Putin. Is Vladimir Putin a great guy? No. Is Xi Jinping a great guy? No. But if we only did business with great guys who are just the best, I mean, that's just not how it works. And so on one on one level, yes. On the second level, like you talked about, the assumption that more trade and stuff would, would open China. So we have a combination of development theory and democratic peace theory that kind of got merged together. And it said, OK, as China gets most favored nation status, as it gets WTO membership, as it gets more integrated into the global economy, this will create a middle class, which will be prosperous, which will demand political rights, which will liberalize and constitutional and will have Republican China. It will transform itself from the inside, and democracies don't fight one another. So by trading with China and integrating it into the global economy, 
will essentially create, you know, uh, a pliant uh, security partner, essentially, is what, what, what they thought would happen. However, if you look at what the Chinese leaders were saying, not just Xi Jinping, everyone from Mao to Deng to Zhang Zemin, any, any of the guys, you can find very hawkish quotes from all those guys all the way through the 90s and into the early 2000s. You mentioned the spy flight incident off Hainan Island and extracting, you know, the, the two apologies and stuff. They've always viewed the American relationship in very pragmatic terms. And they, they have an actual expression for the thing I just described, and it's called the, um, uh, the, um, the peaceful evolution theory. Um, and it's like a, it's a peaceful evolution conspiracy by outside powers to force China to transform itself. She, okay, so she, I see she as a manifestation of the pro, of, well, uh, sorry, politicians, political politicos they want power right so on the one hand it's obvious that if you have someone in a position of authority like the leader of the communist party they're going to try and get more power to their position uh she specifically um recognized that he was going to be navigating china through a very fraught period and set about basically making sure that he would not have any rivals for power because Chinese economy, if you go back to 2012, 2013, the talk was about China's economy being very unbalanced. We need to make all these reforms. And it was understood uh, from the experience of the 1980s that doing these things can create a lot of social and political instability. And that you, I, I, obviously I do not support these kinds of things, but that they viewed as we're going to need to have an authoritarian strong hand to, for example, suppress restive populations. Um, you know, kind of cut through the, the red tape of what needs to happen. Um, that has not really paid dividends, in, in my opinion. And when you look at China, basically uh, all of Xi's hope for, hoped for plans didn't really materialize. And I go into China's economy in great depth in the book because a lot of what he was concerned with was reforming China's economy. China's economy was not reformed, however. Um, it's still basically just, uh, you know, heavily reliant on... Uh, infrastructure and home building and credit creation and full employment policies and state-run operations that are just wildly inefficient and that are being subsidized um, to stay afloat. China has like $8 trillion in non-performing debt locked away in its financial system. It's trying to hold its offshore, so the yuan, there's two yuans, one of them is offshore, one of them is domestic, to prop up that offshore one, they're having to borrow tons and tons of dollars, which are getting really, really expensive, and it's really straining the system. Their property sector is is running into the same problems that all property bubbles run into, right? Eventually, the bubble deflates or pops. Um, and the reason you didn't have a huge, crazy crisis, uh, when, which you had here in the United States, uh, is because you didn't have a total credit crunch, because the Chinese government could just order the money to keep flowing, right? In the United States, you know, you had all these private lenders who immediately froze like, oh, wait a minute, we need to protect our balance sheet. You know, the Fed can't literally command them or the Treasury can't command them to do something. Um, so she is is openly hostile, openly hostile to to Washington in some ways, because um, Washington <laughs> essentially decided by about 2009, 2010, 2011, you can go read Hillary Clinton's article in Foreign Policy. You can go read the uh, uh, 
the uh, the Pentagon's annual report, they start to talk about China as like the next threat. Like you talked about, well, we're kind of done blowing up the Middle East for now. On to the next thing, China, right? We have the pivot, the pivot to Asia. Um, China understood immediately, like, this is obviously directed at us, right? It's not directed at Japan, not directed at Korea, all these pliant U.S. vassal states that have tons of U.S. troops there. It was obviously directed at China. And so he reacted kind of hostily, right? I mean, again, uh, Americans. No, Xi Jinping does not love America. He, he doesn't want to fight America necessarily, but he also is not just going to bend over and do whatever America wants. And you wouldn't expect your leaders to do that either. You wouldn't support your leaders doing that either. Um, I feel like uh, the the understandings that normalized relations between the U.S. and the United States, the first, second, and third communiques, uh, 71, 79, 82, they said, look, we respect China's sovereignty. That's what those were all about, from Nixon to Carter to Reagan. We respect China's sovereignty. We support, you know, encouraging Taiwan to reunify with the mainland. Over time, we're going to scale down the amount of weapons that we're going to send Taiwan. Um, we're not going to send Taiwan new updated weapons. Like, we're not going to put uh, U.S. military assets on Taiwan. We're not going to have high-level diplomatic co contact with Taiwan. All of those things are happening. All of those things are happening. So who has the, the who is justly annoyed by all of this? In, in my view, Beijing would be annoyed, right? Um, agreements were made. Now one side is not honoring the agreements. Just like, you know, the Iranians were peeved and so were the Europeans when Trump ripped up the JCPOA. Like, of course they don't want to get back in. Of course they're annoyed. You made an agreement and now they're going back on the agreement. Um, because Washington's word is, is not really worth the paper that it's printed on, much like the money soon will be. So, Well, yeah, I wouldn't even, me and uh, Zach Yost talked about this last week. We wouldn't even be mind if the U.S. trashed its given agreements, if those, if the trashing of those agreements uh, were actually in favor of greater peace and non-intervention on the part of the United States. But it seems that every time the United States trashes an agreement, it's so the United States can further extend its power and further meddle in foreign regimes rather than retrench and pursue peace. And so that's just the general Washington bias. So, of course, if I was a foreign regime, I would always fear any time the U.S. doesn't hold to its regime because you just assume on which, which direction it's going to be going uh, in. And I think what you touched on there is one of these great fantasies of American politics is that whereas the rally around the flag effect, anybody can see that that works in the United States. Right. If some foreign country were openly threatening the United States, Americans, they tend to support the regime more. Uh, the effect has definitely diminished, I think, in the last 25 years, but it's uh, definitely there. But for some reason, Americans believe that when foreign regimes threaten some other country, so when Americans threaten Iranians or Americans threaten Chinese, that the Chinese will side with the United States and not support its regime more, uh, which is just this delusion that Americans have. Here, we'll, we'll threaten this other country, we'll put an embargo on all of its stuff, we'll, we'll put in, in place um, starvation policies designed to destroy the local population, and I'm sure they'll all become pro-American then. That's not how the world works. If anything, American meddling has provided the absolute justification for the North Korean regime over and over for the last 70 years. 
and certainly, as you note, has an effect in China as well. And this is something also Americans would do well, I think, to notice is that a lot of what foreign regimes say in terms of foreign policy is actually directed at their domestic population. Right. So when the, the Chinese regime acts belligerently toward the United States, they're really actually trying to cater toward the domestic population in many cases and unite the domestic population. Like a lot of time, I remember in the lead up to the Iraq war, every time Saddam Hussein would say something about the Americans or whatever, Americans thought it was all about them. That Saddam Hussein spent all his days thinking about the United States, when in reality, Saddam had serious problems just keeping his regime together and dealing with minorities in, in Iraq. And so it's not all about us, that you have to see what these foreign regimes are saying in terms of foreign policy through the filter of what, what concerns do they have about their own domestic regimes and domestic situation. So you've, you've touched on that a little bit. And I think what I want to look at just as, as we conclude here is we've talked a lot about, about relations between China and the United States. But what about China's relation with some of its other neighbors? This is something that was noticed, noted a lot in uh, a book that touches on some of the same points as your book, uh, that book by Michael Beckley called Unrivaled, where uh, yeah. he looks at, hey, look, China's got all these territorial disputes. It's got ethnic groups that are unsatisfied. And so people forget, A, China has no West Coast, right? It's boxed in on the West by a number of other countries. And then it's got all these maritime borders with a bunch of countries that aren't particularly friendly. People forget that Vietnam and China do not exactly have a long history of cooperation and peace. I mean, 1979 was, was actually a huge deal when Vietnam and China came to war. And this was a, a, a war that suddenly illustrated that two communist regimes don't necessarily get along. And that was actually a big crisis for the whole Marxist ideology was, mm -hmm. oh, wait. Yeah, turning the whole world communist won't bring world peace, it turns out. So there's a problem. The Filipinos, they don't care for China. So what are some of these other international issues that China has to deal with that would exist even if the United States weren't even there to support those regimes? That's absolutely great. And I, I in the book, I go through its internal, external geography, resource constraints, neighbors, economy, all that stuff. So if people are really interested in going one by one through these things, it's a short read. And it, I, I, I do a good job touching on all of these things because I understand it's it's not intuitive because China has all these people and they're the second largest economy and look at on the map. They're really big. You, you have to appreciate what's actually there. Um, like you said, they are surrounded on all sides. They're outnumbered like seven to one or something like that. And these states don't like China. Um, Vietnam has no interest in being dominated by China. India has no interest in being dominated by China. The Philippines, Indonesia, I mean, these are hugely populous countries, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in each of these countries. India is now, of course, more populous than China. And, of course, mountains, deserts, I mean, it's totally impassable stuff here. Um, so the idea that China is going to, if, if the United States is not constantly trying to contain it, that China will just start invading and taking over all of its neighbors is just completely false and wrong. And nobody believes that in those countries. That is all stuff that's believed in America and in Australia. Australia Australian media is so in America's pocket on that stuff. that Like the Australian version of 60 Minutes is just horrible. Um, I watch a little bit of that. Um, no, in, in, the, in the actual countries that are, that are bordering China, they want 
to engage economically with China, but they're very protective of their own sovereignty. Um, because they all have experiences of, you know, Chinese expansionism over the centuries. Like you said, a border war um, in 79. Um, so, yes, all the countries around China, they don't necessarily want to fight China. Right. Who would want who wants to get in a huge war? Nobody. No, no ordinary person wants to get in a huge war. There's a lot of economic benefits to be had, but they're also very careful to keep China at arm's length and some of them are why wouldn't they be willing to host other people's assets like you don't pay for them right this is all the american taxpayer those suckers are paying for this stuff so of course they're okay with having the united states around to you know quote unquote balance against china but that does not serve our interests america's interests and really if you care about the you know freedom in china and stuff like that it's the greatest gift to the regime that you can give them like you were saying ryan Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, Cuba, these policies of isolating and uh, demonizing and sanctioning these countries, it doesn't lead to regime change. It doesn't lead to these populations loving the United States. Why would it? That doesn't even make sense. You know, but again, these are all just policies that you say it and no one ever digs into it. No one ever goes beyond that. No one looks at the actual data and says, oh, well, it looks like this doesn't actually work. Um, it makes people more hostile towards America, and it strengthens the hands of people who, you know, let, let's be real. I mean, obviously, these are not liberal societies. None of us would want to live in these places. Um, but by attempting to rule the world, America has trended more and more in that direction. Um, there's a really great article uh, William Graham Sumner wrote uh, uh, around the time of the, the um, Spanish-American War. Uh, and he basically said, look, if we continue to, if we choose to go the imperialist route like the Europeans, we will wind up with a despotism at home. Uh, and I, I, I think, it, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. It was something like how the how the Spanish it was the conquest a, of the United States by Spain. That's exactly it. And it's great so article. prescient. It's so upsetting to read today as you look back on the 20th century because it was just it was all just a horrible disaster and a mistake. And it was people were saying it at the time, like, don't do it. This is a horrible mistake. And uh, and here we are today fretting about, you know, Cold War number two when we didn't even need Cold War number one, just like we didn't need the war on terror, just like we didn't need to get involved in World War One, which created World War Two. And like, gosh, we're we're totally safe over here. We got these huge moats, very weak, nice neighbors who just want to in it economically interact with each other. I, I tell people, look, the, the crisis on the southern border. Why do you think all these people are leaving their country? Like, look back in the 90s. It was all people from Guatemala and El Salvador who were coming. Okay, and now it's people from Venezuela. What is the common denot? What, what, what do they have in common? Oh, right. The U.S. is meddling in their countries and waging economic war and destroying them and propping up, like, paramilitary groups. Of course these people are trying to get out of there. Come on. The American empire does nothing but hurt the average American. Um... Deindustrialization. Just really quick, I wrote an article on this. I found all this really great stuff about like security planners in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s saying, well, we've got all these manufacturing jobs here in Ohio, but if we let the Japanese, uh, you know, uh, have a plant or something like that, like they'll let us have more military bases or something. And so like literally just trading American manufacturing jobs for more military bases overseas. 
you know? And I just find it so weird that it's those, it's those people who just their knee-jerk reaction is like, no, America needs to be tough and strong and lead on the world stage. But also, you know, we need to get the debt under control and cut the deficit and rebuild manufacturing and things like that. It's like, these things don't go together. They can't go together. Um, and playing empire is bankrupting us, uh, economically and, and, and like morally and spiritually. I think it's just making us sick. Um, and destroying America on the world stage. Like no one, no one believes that, that stuff about like spreading freedom and peace and stuff. Um, which is sad because that, even Mao, uh, back in like the 19, 1910s, I think it was 1915, he, he basically was like, yeah, America is, is going to be the savior of China because uh, Wilson was promising the Chinese that if they helped in World War One, that they would fight for them at Versailles and get their territorial autonomy back and all that stuff. And then Wilson, like, screws them over and uh, Mao writes this piece about, like, America being, like, the biggest bunch of jackals and hypocrites and... And that does, that, it's because it's so obvious. The rules-based international order is just so much rhetoric, right? Um, and it's not like American academics and people like you and me don't see that and talk about it and that ordinary people can't see it. But for some reason, the political class ha and, and this very small subset of the foreign policy establishment have a total monopoly, a total monopoly. And uh, it's very important to fight, fight that. Well, uh, I'm I'm convinced that the reason they hate us is because we're free, Joseph. This is I, I grew up. <laughs> That's what I'm told. That's what I'm told. <laughs> they hate us because we're free, and they're the new axis of evil. I noticed that the new I speaker. I was it though. Was it the new speaker of the house labeled China part of the new axis of evil? Uh, I, 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 McConnell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Netanyahu's explicitly using the rhetoric, but yeah, we 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 have we've gone past the '90s politics reboot, and now back in the early 2000s. Oof. Yeah, so they're just getting, I mean, they're not going to give up on this whole, we need a new Cold War, and World War Three is, uh, it may be necessary. That's, uh, yeah, the ruling class. It'll solve global warming. Right. <laughs> I read it in the New York Times. We just need a small nuclear war. It's good for us. Don't you know that? A nuclear winter to combat nuclear warming, <laughs> or uh, global warming. Yes, perfect. The uh, Everybody calm down. The, the people in charge know exactly what they're doing, as we learned during COVID. Uh, well, we better wrap up with that then. Uh, thank you for listening to uh, this episode of Raider Rothbard. Thank you to Joseph Solis Mullen for joining us. His book is The Fake China Threat and Its Very Real Danger. Uh, it uh, just came out. You can get it on Amazon if you want. And uh, I think I will check out a copy myself here. Looking at Amazon. Great. Okay, good. Uh, so thank you. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Me and Tho, of course. And so we will see you next time.